Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, and I swear I had nothing to do with the burning of Rome. My co-host is Guy, who I hear is quite the liar. Player, that is. Hello, Guy. <laughs> Hello, Ron. So, uh, this is an interesting show. The writer, who was the script editor on the series, Dennis Spooner, wanted to start interjecting humor into the show, so we, I think we will see that. But also, he wrote The Reign of Terror, and... Mm. I enjoyed that show, but, uh, you know, we've called out Terry Nation for sort of repeating himself, and I think we'll notice a few uh, similarities between this story and the Reign of Terror, I think about yeah, it. Yeah, I, uh, I did notice at least one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, not much else to say other than, you know, they really did go out of their way as much as they could on their budget to try and accurately reflect Rome in the time of Nero, so basically around, you know, just a few years A.D. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. Um, on to our first episode, The Slave Traders. So as we saw at the cliffhanger of the last story, <laughs> the literal cliffhanger, the TARDIS materializes on the side of a cliff and then falls over, knocking the crew to the floor. And we now see the TARDIS crash at the bottom of the cliff, but a little odd because it's covered in vines and you might almost think they'd been growing for a while because they're like all mm. over the, the TARDIS. And we then cut to Ian. He seems to be unconscious on a bed, so kind of, and he's wearing a robe. Maybe he's like in a hospital. Maybe he's been hurt. <laughs> and then he brings a bunch of grapes to his lips and eats them <laughs> with great relish. <laughs> the whole thing's a big fake out. Turns out they've been in a nice Roman villa for the last month. <laughs> yeah. And this setting is, when I saw the grapes, it, it reminded me of the the show in last season where they end up meeting the brains in jars that starts off <laughs> yep, they're yep. having a nice luxury vacation. Yeah, very similar. Except this one, they actually do get a bit of a vacation. That one it was all a fake. <laughs> <laughs> we pull back and see that Ian is in a Roman villa with a central fountain, busts around, you know, plants, and the doctor's tending to some of the plants and they have a little discussion about how Barbara and Vicky have gone down to the village. So Clearly, we start to realize they've been here for a while, and we do find out soon that it's been a month since the TARDIS crashed, and they haven't bothered to go back to it. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned this before, but I, I kind of like unexpected time jumps like this, like Battlestar Galactica, I think at the end of their first season or something, they skipped a year, and that upset some fans. But I feel like it just gives you a little space. It gives you time mm -hmm. to, you know, maybe change things up. Like, everything doesn't have to be the day or minute after the last story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... uh the companions have been through quite a quite a gauntlet of horrifying things <laughs> since uh, the beginning of season one. So uh, a month's rest is probably just what the doctor ordered. Yeah, and it's always nice if you land in Rome right in the middle of a villa that the owner is away for a month and you just get to <laughs> take it on. So then we go to this path. We're going to see this path a lot. You know, they, had, they clearly had one path set that's going to get used a whole lot in this story. <laughs> Barbara and Vicky are walking down the path, surrounded by vegetation. 
And Vicky is frustrated because she was promised, you know, she only joined in the last story, the rescue. And she was promised by the TARDIS crew members that there would be adventures. And they've just been sitting around and resting. <laughs> and she's very frustrated by this. And I have to say my worst vacation story ever was going on vacation with a friend who acted like that. Every time we <laughs> sat down in a restaurant with friends for a while, she's like, oh, we got to get going. We got to go see them. And it's like, hey, we're just, <laughs> anyway, why don't we just sit here and have some calm time and a drink <laughs> yeah yeah sitting in a bar with a drink is uh my idea of a vacation <laughs> and even better this was Prague, so we were sitting like in the bar that or the pub that mozart had been in so it's not like oh, we wow. weren't, you know, weren't absorbing some history in the process <laughs> and barbara kind of warns her that uh, you might not want as much adventure as you think and it tends to tends to come along on its own and we mm -hmm. quickly see that Vicky may get her wish because we see some kind of bad guy hiding in the bushes and he's sharpening a short sword, which a Roman short sword is called a gladius. So we'll see a lot of those in this story. And we can tell he seems to be a bit dim-witted and it's a little uncurred right now. I mean, presumably he's going to take out whoever he finds, but he doesn't really go after Barbara and Vicky and they walk along. Yeah, I was a little surprised when I saw the title of the show was The Slave Traders. I figured, oh, he's going to waylay him and take mm. him off to be slaves. But that's not quite what happens. No, they go off to a market. So apparently this is a market in a little village that is a little ways from Rome. So it's a, kind of the outskirts of Rome kind of thing. We get this really impressive shot. First of all, again, for the resources they had in sets and everything, um, they have a really good market set. I think it's lots of people in it and lots of stuff. And they do this pretty complicated shot where we see from the camera two men who are walking on the other side of the market and the camera follows them from behind everything. And the men walk around in a half circle and the camera goes in a half circle the other way and they meet at the end. And so it's a, you know, those are complicated shots to do, especially on a TV show and everything. Mm -hmm. and you have to make all that stuff work. Oh yeah. And the men are looking to buy something important before they reach Rome, but this market seems too small to have it. Turns out they've brought slaves from Gaul. So it may be that they're looking to sell rather than buy. And the men see Barbara and Vicky enter the market, and they're immediately interested in them. And Barbara and Vicky haggle with a woman vendor over some dress material. Vicky asks Barbara what the style was when she was in London. And Barbara teases her that she's never heard of London. They're from Londinium, <laughs> as the Romans <laughs> know it. And after they leave the vendor, the men go to the vendor and bribe her to tell him about these women. And she tells them, well, they've been here about, you know, about a month, and they're in this villa with two men. And she does say that she just heard them mention this town, maybe called Londinium. And do these guys know what that is? So, you know, at that time, you know, London was kind of an out of the way island, right? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a ways away from Rome. Yep. And uh, the men do know it. And they know that that town is in a place called Britannia. <laughs> and they, uh, they say something that indicates that this, this is perfect because they figure they can grab the women and nobody will miss them. Mm-hmm. So we're back on the path. Lots of people traveling back and forth on the path. And we see the bad guy waiting in the bushes. And an old man who we saw playing the liar in the market walks by. And the bad guy attacks him really quite viciously. He stabs him with a sword and kills him. And overall, this story has a lot of humor in it, but it is mixed in with some spots of violence. <laughs> mm. well, that's appropriate for a show about the Romans, I guess. Yeah. So back in the villa, the entire crew is having a sumptuous meal, which really does call back to that story you mentioned where with the eyes <laughs> and all that. And the doctor is just delighted with the food and he's going on and on about it. And he's asked what they've been eating. And 
Barbara says, you know, peacock breasts and lark's tongues. By the way, I got to tell you, so I, I enjoy cooking and I enjoy trying to cook like historical meals and stuff. And so I did come across a recipe that required like 20 lark's tongues, but I couldn't find any lark's tongues. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that could be a hard thing to come by. Maybe you could get chicken tongues. Well, it is interesting because when you're trying to do historical cooking, we don't always know what they were talking about when they mentioned certain ingredients. Certain plants, for example, mm -hmm. they'll use a name for a plant and we can only guess if it's a modern plant or a plant that no longer exists. And, you know, so there's right. a lot of kind of reconstructing what the actual ingredients were. The doctor asks what these delightful hors d'oeuvres they had were, and, and Vicky chides him that French hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> and this kind of surprised me. So I looked it up. First of all, I don't think of this as being as long ago as it was. So we are talking 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I still tend to assume that the countries and the languages that we more or less have now were there then. Like Gaul was France, even though we didn't call it France. Yeah. But she's right. Uh, French was derived from a Roman version of Latin called Vulgar Latin, right? The, the common mm. people spoke. So I would have assumed that French was around, but it wasn't yet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it turns out those orders were ants, eggs, and honey. <laughs> and I'm curious about this. I've never seen ants, eggs as, as an ingredient. It seems to me ants, eggs would be really, really small. I'm not quite sure how you would do that. But Yeah, you know. I, I think ant, eggs actually are about as big as an ant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're pretty, pretty big. Well, you've seen them before because in the, uh, remember the, Episodes we just watched where everybody shrunk down to an inch tall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and the, and one of the first things they found in the first episode was the, uh, things that looked like eggs and, uh, they were just these big elliptical cylinders. Right. Right. But those were the ant eggs that were gigantic because they were shrunken people. So they didn't even think about eating them in that episode. <laughs> <laughs> if they got hungry enough, they probably would have. So Ian asks a seemingly reasonable question of the doctor. One of those seemingly reasonable questions that causes the doctor to get pissed off. <laughs> he, he says, well, what about the TARDIS? We've been here a month. You know, we left the TARDIS at the bottom of this cliff and it was, you know, turned over. And the doctor chides him for wanting to move on and says the TARDIS can take off from any position. It's fine. And Ian says, no, no, I'm quite happy. I want to stay here for as long as possible. Barbara echoes Ian's concerns and the doctor says the TARDIS is perfectly safe. He's never known such a bunch of warriors. He can't wait to get away from them for a couple of days. And they're quite surprised that he's decided to take a trip. And he's like, well, you know, I don't have to tell you when I'm going to go take a trip. <laughs> and he starts loading up on food from the meal for his trip. Ian wants to know where he's going. And we get uh, one of many little fun verbal exchanges here. The doctor says, I don't believe I was under any obligation to report my movements to you, Chesterfield. And I think that's a reference to when he honestly made the mistake Chesterfield in a previous <laughs> episode. Mm, could be. And, and Barbara says, Chesterton. And the I doctor think... says, oh, Barbara is calling you. <laughs> <laughs> I think Chesterfield is also a name for a couch. So right. uh, he could be sort of insulting him a little bit too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so turns out the doctor is going to Rome. Vicky insists on going with him. Ian and Barbara want to go too, but the doctor refuses. And he, he, he's, he's just being really ornery. He says, said, you already refused to go with me. And Ian said, what do you mean? He said, well, you said you want to stay here as long as possible. So <laughs> that was before they'd even have the conversation about the doctor leaving. So he's just being a jerk. <laughs> yep. He says they can go to Rome on their own if they wish. And the doctor and Vicky leave. 
And interesting little sequence here. I'll have to get your opinion. <laughs> but uh, Barbara eyes Ian very appreciatively, and she comments on what a splendid Roman he'd make. <laughs> and then she takes this Roman comb thing, which is not like a, a comb that we'd be familiar with. It's more like blades that are just there to sort of move your hair forward over your forehead. Mm. And she fixes his hair to be more Roman-like using this comb. Yeah, she basically combs his part into bangs. Mm -hmm. And he then goes around the villa making speeches <laughs> from Shakespeare, and she then <laughs> instantly regrets what she's done. <laughs> Outside, the slave traders we met in the market are stopped for the night with their slaves. And their slaves they brought from Gaul are not very good shape, you know, not impressive. They're not expecting to make much money off of them. They really need some better quality slaves, which is apparently why they were interested in Barbara and Vicky. Yeah. So the traders arm themselves and they plan to take the four from the villa and then break camp. And back in the villa, Barbara's lying back on the couch and Ian is very relaxed, leaning against her feet. <laughs> and this is the shot that all Doctor Who fans have this debate about, which is did they or didn't they? <laughs> so what's <Yeah>. your take? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say probably not because it would just make <laughs> things too weird for the rest of the show. But, uh, but Barbara could, using her history knowledge, she could have gone to the market for sheep intestines, which is <laughs> how Romans made uh, their prophylactics back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll say if they didn't do it, there certainly is that atmosphere here. Oh There's, yeah, you know. sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I won't. I won't say that I know definitively that what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> Ian pours another round of drinks for them, and Barbara punks him by saying he can get ice from the fridge, <laughs> and he walks halfway to the kitchen before realizing, of course, there's no fridge. <laughs> Although the Romans did have ice, it was expensive and difficult. What they would do is. They would have a room full of ice and they would bring in snow and, you know, keep the snow cold on the ice and then use that for meals and for ice cream hmm. and such. Where my dad grew up in the mid 20th century, they didn't have electricity there when he was really young and they would have ice yeah. houses and they'd pile the ice in there and they'd cover it with sawdust mm -hmm. and that would insulate it somehow that, uh, you know, keep it ice in, you know, through the middle of summer. Well, it's interesting to realize that in basically in 2000 years until, like you say, the last, you know, few hundred years, the technology for ice didn't really change, right? They used to, uh, what they did in the U.S., like you're talking about, the way they get that ice is they would just cut it out of a lake mm -hmm. during the winter and then store it. So, that, yeah, I mean, we were basically doing the same thing as the Romans up until recently. Yeah. So we're back at the path and the doctor and Vicky are walking at night along the path and they stop to examine a statue. And then the doctor sees the body of the liar player. And Vicky assumes it was robbers, but the doctor knows that they've left his belongings, including the liar, which he picks up. Behind them, a Roman soldier is walking along the path, and with his sword, he's sort of checking the bushes. And the doctor asks who or what he's looking for. And it turns out he's looking for a famous liar player who hadn't shown up for his gig. <laughs> and it turns out the doctor is holding a liar. Now, something that'll actually come back here. Um, it was a little odd to me because he, he says he was looking for potentially the body of the liar player and just going along here or trying to find him. And he knew exactly where to be and he was poking into the bushes. And at the time it seems like, oh, this is a little unrealistic, but later it mm. turns out actually it's not. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor goes along with this and pretends to be the liar player. And it turns out he's headed for the court of Nero. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor's excited to hear this. 
And he says, Vicky needs to come. She always travels with him. She keeps her eye on all the liars. And he looks at her when he says this. And it's just another little humorous bit. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're back in the slaver tent and the slavers are talking to a man who encountered their camp and who wants to purchase some of their goods. And he's particularly interested in the British woman, <laughs> but they won't sell her at a price he can afford. So he'll take three men instead. And of course, Ian is one of the men he takes. Yeah, I saw that coming. <laughs> and this here also is where I, you know, one of those things where you have echoes of Reign of Terror, because Reign of Terror was all about them getting captured over and over again and being put in jail mm -hmm. and being, you know, et cetera. And, and basically this story is the same thing. Yeah. And then we're in a room. We'll find out what this is later. But the soldier who found the doctor is waiting alone. He's pacing. And eventually the man who killed the liar player shows up. It turns out that he was paid by the soldier to kill the liar player because Nero pays to have better musicians than him killed. <laughs> and I don't know if that's true or a myth or what, but, uh, and so the reason the soldier knew exactly where to be and was looking in the bushes is because he was trying to, to find the body where it was supposed to have been left. He tells the killer who is mute and it turns out he's had his tongue cut out for being a thief. So he can't talk and he tells him the doctor is in the room above. So he has another chance to dispatch him. And they, they mentioned later, and again, I didn't look this up, so I don't know how true it is, but Vicky eventually asked, why didn't the soldier just kill the liar player himself? And the doctor says that if he killed him himself, he could be legally liable, but it was okay to hire an assassin to kill somebody. So I don't know. Maybe the Roman legal system didn't hold you responsible if you paid someone else to do it, you know? Yeah, I'd, I didn't interpret it to mean that assassination was okay but more that it was just the way things were done it was understood that in general you wanted to hire an assassin rather than doing it yourself because there's less of a chance it can be traced back to you mm -hmm. but it could be i mean it's it's possible that the assassination would be no i, I don't think the assassination would be legal i i, well, I think so what, what I'm ignorantly thinking might be the case is not that it would be legal, but only the person who assassinated him would be legally responsible. So, if you, uh, so even if they did trace it back to the person who hired the assassin, they might yeah. not possibly. Yeah. I, sh I should have be. checked into this. It uh, would be interesting to know. <laughs> oh, I know yeah. much more about Roman food than I know about the Roman legal system. So. <laughs> okay. So he told the killer, go upstairs where the doctor is and you'll have another chance to kill him. And he does so, and through a curtain, we hear the doctor trying to play the liar and kind of laughing to himself and saying, you know, what he's going to have to do is avoid playing it at all in front of Nero. And then the killer sneaks into his room, and it's the end of the episode. Mm. Part two, all roads lead to Rome. The assassin comes through the curtain behind the doctor, and of course the doctor doesn't see him, but fortunately enough, the doctor stands and turns just in time to block the assassin's short sword with his lyre. For some reason, the assassin is doing a slash with, with his sword instead of a stab, which I would think would be the more, <laughs> the better option, but that's not what he went for. So the doctor, just by sheer uh, good fortune, he blocks the, blocks the first sword slash. His reaction's very interesting. He, he barely even seems surprised, and he says, Oh, so you want to fight, do you? <laughs> yeah, he's, here's this guy trying to kill him with a sword, and he's just amused the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor proves himself to be a fairly uh, uh, worthy opponent here. He, uh, first of all, he beans the assassin with what looks like a potted plant, something like that. I couldn't quite tell what yeah. it was, but 
And then he confuses the assassin by throwing a blanket over him. When the assassin extricates himself from that, uh, the doctor splashes him with the contents of a vase, which is probably wine, but I don't know. And then, to add more insult to injury, he smashes the vase over his head. And as the doctor is doing all this, um, right after he's sort of reached a pause in the fighting, he sort of backs away from the assassin, and he laughs maniacally. Um, <laughs> and I, I recommend putting a sound clip in here, because that's uh, worth having, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the assassin comes at him with the short sword again, but the doctor flips him. You blends him, leaves him lying on the ground. Uh, the assassin gets up from that, and then Vicky enters with a big urn, and she's about to smash it over the assassin's head, but he's had enough, and he flees out the window. Yeah, not clear to me, like, kind of fell to his death, or if he's still going to be around, or, or what, I'm, you know, but... Yeah, that's true. He he may have actually fallen to his death uh, because sometime later, the well, we'll get to it in a minute, but the doctor basically says he won't be coming back. So it could be, I guess. We'll see. Anyway, the doctor, having just been rescued by Vicky, or, well, at least uh, helped by Vicky, he complains, just as I got him softened up and ready for the old one-two. <laughs> <laughs> he was having a good time throughout all that. Yeah, it's funny. The stuntman who played the mute guy... He pointed out, first of all, that when he first comes in the room, he sort of had to stand there waiting until until Hartnell turned around so that he could do the <laughs> slash, you know, so he's sort of standing for no reason. And then basically, because, you know, Hartnell's this old guy and he couldn't, he was just throwing himself around the room, you know, whenever, whenever Hartnell touched him. So. <laughs> Very good. Well, it was an entertaining scene anyway. Yeah. So the doctor takes a moment to praise his own skill at fisticuffs, and he reveals that he used to teach fighting to the mountain mauler of Montana. So hopefully we'll learn more about that in the future. Yeah, remember, this is the nonviolent guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe he didn't maul people permanently. You know, yeah. just sort of roughed them up a little. <laughs> the doctor thinks that after after all that exercise, he's going to get a pleasant night's sleep. And he says he thinks he can promise that the man won't be coming back. So that, if the if the doctor thinks he fell to his death, that would explain it. Otherwise, I don't know why the doctor would think that he can guarantee that, unless he just got the measure of the man and figured he didn't have it in him to try again. Vicky says that the centurion is gone, the one who had found them originally. And the doctor says he's not surprised. The centurion probably hired the killer. Hmm. And this is where he speculates, like you mentioned earlier, that it was to keep the centurion out of, you know, legal culpability or, mm. or distance him from getting caught. So Vicky has to remind the doctor again what his fake name is supposed to be. <laughs> and the doctor says, yes, must remember that name. <laughs> so we'll hope that he does. The doctor says they'll continue to roam in the morning. Vicky is, is concerned, but the doctor reassures her by saying, when I say we go to Rome, we go to Rome. <laughs> the next thing we see is a large model of Rome. We, we see Rome from a few different angles, and I'm thinking, I know there's at least one great big model of Rome out mm. there, and I don't know when it was constructed, but I'm wondering if this was that, because it seems... It seems very large and elaborate to have been constructed for a five-second... Yeah, there's no way they could afford it for this show, so... <laughs> yeah. 
So we see a nice large model of Rome at any rate, with the title Roma superimposed over it. Then we see a dungeon that is in Rome, presumably. And the slave trader puts Barbara in a cell with an old woman. He puts them both in there at the same time. They were both part of the same slave group. The cell itself, it you really couldn't tell it from a cell like in a Wild West jail or something like that. It's got metal bars very similar to what we think of jail cells looking like. I, I don't know whether or not that's historically accurate. It just looks very modern. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like they may have had some metal bars that they would put in windows and stuff for cells, but... It does seem very unlikely that, you know, 2,000-year-old cells would look exactly the same as modern mm-hmm. ones. And I, I suspect this is just, you know, you get the this from the BBC plot, or not plot, <laughs> the BBC... Prop department. Prop department, that would be it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, everybody knows what it is, and nobody thinks about it twice, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, just part of your visual language. <laughs> so the... The trader tells Barbara he's going to get her new clothes. He says, he, I want you looking special at the slave auction. <laughs> the old woman in the cell with Barbara, she's coughing. She's not in great shape. And this reminds me, originally I thought it was Vicky who had been thrown in the cell with Barbara. And that triggered me to remember the Reign of Terror, yeah. where uh, you know Barbara gets thrown in a cell with Susan, and Susan's sick right away. And yeah. you know, So that was one of those little echoes here. But the old woman's coughing. We find out that it took them 34 days to get here. So that little village they've been staying in must be a good uh, a good all away from uh, from Rome. Yeah. They've talked about Ian on the trip, and they've had time to get acquainted, I guess, and opportunities to get acquainted. You know, a lot of times the guys in movies who or TV shows, you know, they, they capture some slaves, and every time they start talking to each other, they just clot <laughs> them on the head and tell them to shut up. But apparently not these two. So they know a little bit about Ian already, or the old woman knows a little bit about him. She tells Barbara she hopes she'll find her friend. And Barbara looks out of the jail cell window wistfully. <laughs> then we see a ship sailing. Uh, and this it, ship interior, you know, you've seen it in a lot of shows before. It's, it's the you know, under the deck of a galley where all the rowers are. But it's a pretty good set, mm-hmm. yeah, especially for the relatively small amount of time that it appears in the show here, unless they find a way to recycle it on a different ship in future episodes, which could very well happen. But it's a good set. There's yep. a drummer beating time for the rowers. The rowers are given a short break, and the galley master, who's the guy in charge of all the all the rowers, he says there's bad weather coming up. As soon as he says that, I, I know right <laughs> where this is going. Ian talks to his rowing buddy, Delos. And Delos is also, it's the name of a Greek island. I, I looked this up. But it's also, where I knew it from, was it's the name of the resort in Westworld, where uh, Roman world right. is one right. of the <laughs> attractions. So I don't know if they, maybe it was named after this character or, or if it's just right. a coincidence. See, Westworld's probably our most referenced cultural thing, which means, you know, if I put in a clip, I'll have to find a new clip. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't bother. It was just a sort of offhand mention. (laughs) thought it was worth throwing in there. And you, madam? Hello. What is your name? My name is Janet Lane, and I was in Roman World. What is the one thing that stands out in your mind about Roman World? Oh, well, I think it would be... The men. 
I just feel marvelous. I mean, it's just a warm, glowing place to be. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, there are some of the comments of the people who just returned from Dallas. Why don't you make arrangements to take our hovercraft to medieval world, Roman world, and West world? <laughs> so Ian talks to his rowing buddy, and he complains about rowing for five whole days. <laughs> Dalo says they soon melt into weeks, then months, then years. <laughs> Ian says, I've got to get away from here. Mm -hmm. Delos notices that there's some land visible. It's, it's a long way away, but it's visible, so it can only be so far. And it turns out they've been working on a plan. <laughs> when, when he said working on a plan, I'm like, okay, this, you know, like everybody's going to be in on it. Uh, you know, there, there's a whole complicated thing here. That's not quite <laughs> how it goes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very small, intimate little plan. <laughs> now they put it into action. Delos fakes being sick, or actually fakes being dead, and Ian calls the galley master and says, he's dead. <laughs> so when the galley master leans in, now the galley master is on sort of a raised platform above the rowers. So he's up on his platform, he leans in, and Ian tries to grab him, but the, the galley master, he's not having any of that. He slips away easily. His response is funny here because... You know, in a lot of Roman-themed shows, you would expect Ian to get himself a good beating, but the uh, the galley master just says, y'all have to do it better than that, and he uh, walks away. He doesn't even give Ian a light lashing. Yeah, I had a hard time buying that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the, the entirety of this plan they've been working on was, let's grab the guy. <laughs> <laughs> the plan is, get him. <laughs> yeah. Back in the uh, slave trader's jail, Barbara is encouraging her cellmate, the old woman, uh, to eat. And finally she persuades her to. And a bald man comes to stand at the cell door and he asks Barbara's name. He says he wants to help her, but of course she has to trust him. Which, mm -hmm. <laughs> no way that could go wrong. When Barbara finds out his plan involves buying her and that she wouldn't be free to go where she likes... Barbara gives him the brush off, but the ringleader of the slave traders, he approaches the bald fellow, whose name turns out to be Tavius. He tells him he won't make a private deal for Barbara. She's to be sold at auction, and if he really wants to buy her, he can bid there. So Tavius leaves, and the ringleader gives Barbara her new dress. But he doesn't have anything for the old woman. It turns out the reason for that is she's not going to the auction. She's going to the circus to be thrown mm -hmm. into the arena. And that's not really something you want to hear about <laughs> where you're going next. We cut back to a storm at sea. This is the bad weather the galley master was warning about. He's prodding the rowers to row high, harder, you know, yelling at them, row harder. <laughs> but they're getting tired, but they're still keeping it up for the moment. The ship lurches suddenly, and the galley master loses his balance on his little catwalk, and he falls down among the rowers, and they swarm him. Yeah, that uh, might have been a better plan earlier, like for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, some more, um, some more cooperation. But see, the bigger you make your conspiracy, the more chance there yeah. is that there's a rat in it. So it it's a balancing act there. Looks like the ship is breaking up. You've got water splashing in, you've got ceiling beams coming down, 
And then we see a shot of waves crashing against rocks, and then it cuts back to Rome. So we don't find out what happens there, although I did have a pretty strong guess. <laughs> and the shot of, you know, the beam coming down and the water coming, it was pretty intense, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. And it looked to me, the camera pulls up, and I think it got banged in it, so which actually made it only a little more exciting because <laughs> the camera's sort of getting smacked while it's doing all this, you know. yeah. I thought it was pretty good as a scene, although, I mean, you obviously know that Ian's not going to, you know, this isn't the episode with the death of Ian in it. Mm-hmm. I guess it always could be. It's not like you've guaranteed me that he's going to get out of this alive, but uh, <laughs> I just have a, that feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like the guy is going to die. Yeah, no comment, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> so back in Rome, the doctor and Vicky are in a busy public area. It turns out that the doctor recognizes it as a slave auction, but Vicky doesn't know what's going on. The auction hasn't started yet. They're still getting things arranged with leading people up to the platform and so forth. So he just tells her not to pay attention to it and leads her away. It seems like he's trying to shield her from all the unpleasantness, which mm-hmm. I, you know, you'd think in ancient Rome, it's only a matter of time before you see something unpleasant. But mm-hmm. uh, I guess he's just trying to do what he can. So they leave just seconds before Barbara is brought up onto the platform. Yeah, and this is kind of a theme in the, especially the first few episodes of the show is that they keep missing each other by a few seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's kind of it's it's an implausible coincidence, but on the other hand, it's kind of a cute scene. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's on purpose. Yes. Yeah. The ringleader of the slave traders, he begins the bidding on Barbara. She's the first one to be auctioned off, actually. I would think they may want to warm up the crowd first, but you know, I don't know the psychology of auctioneering. <laughs> I'm going I'm to say this is just because the show needed it to be that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he begins the bidding on her, and he calls her a fine female example of the beautiful, hardworking, but Britannic race. <laughs> so uh, he's got his patter already. He's been, mm-hmm. he's been working on it. A man in the crowd right near the platform, he feels up Barbara's calf. She tries to stomp on his hand. This provokes laughter in the audience, and, and the the auctioneer, he actually says, take note, gentlemen, of the fiery spirit. <laughs> he encourages them to double their bids, because uh, that's apparently a selling point. I think they start, well, he asked for 500 or something at the beginning, or there, someone did a starting well, I think bid of someone, 500. Someone offered 500, and he wasn't. He wasn't yeah. happy with that. So the bidding does eventually get up to 2,500 sesterces. But then a voice in the back says 10,000. <laughs> and that's Tavius, the bald-headed man who had stood outside the cell door earlier. When they hear that, the crowd goes quiet. And Tavius is, uh, of course, the winning bidder. <laughs> and then the next shot is exactly what I was expecting. It's... Ian lying unconscious on a beach. <laughs> <laughs> this is very Shakespearean, you know, the whole shipwreck mm, and, the and getting it. Yeah, you know, there's all sorts of shipwrecks and people, you know, and, and also, I mean, it's probably not just Shakespearean, probably just kind of a thing of the times, you know, if you traveled by ship, there was some good percentage you were either going to end up at the bottom no. of the sea or, <laughs> you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was always a risk. It's, it still is, but it's a very, very small risk compared to the olden times. And it's kind of amazing to me if you see some of those pictures they where they find these trading ships and stuff from this time period and they'll find the vases of wine, you know, with it still plugged and the wine still in there and all this. Mm-hmm. It's been there for thousands of years. It's really quite amazing. Oh, yeah. 
So he is laying unconscious on the beach. Delos squats beside him as he wakes up. It turns out that when Ian lunged for the galley master in their brilliant plan earlier, it actually wasn't such a bad plan because Delos managed to lift the key off the galley master. So, you know, in retrospect, not <laughs> such a bad plan. Okay, I didn't, I didn't notice him saying that. That's interesting. <laughs> so Delos used it to free them, except their wrist chains. They work on a different key or something, I guess. <laughs> so somehow... He uses a couple of rocks to break the restraints, and they don't they don't aim the camera at the wrist restraints <laughs> while he's doing this. So I, I'm thinking this is a bit of a convenience, but he gets them free anyhow. And he says that he's done some scouting around, and they must be near Rome. Delos wants to travel together and travel away from the direction of Rome, uh, but Ian has to go there for Barbara. Delos doesn't like that much. Uh, and then we get a shot of the uh, one of the rooms of Barbara's new forever home. Tavius saw Barbara being kind to the old woman, and he had decided that he should be kind to her. That's what he tells her anyway. She's in Nero's house to be a servant of Poppea. And the show doesn't say it, but I looked it up, and she was Nero's wife. So she's to be a servant of the Empress. So as long as she doesn't screw up, she'll at least be pretty well treated, probably. Maybe. <laughs> can always count on that with, uh, you know, the uh, the highborn can be awfully prickly sometimes, but uh, you never know. Barbara says she's grateful, but she has no intention of staying. Tavius does, surprisingly, doesn't seem too dismayed by that, but he does take time to point out that if she escapes and is recaptured, she would be executed. Tavius goes on to say, I only select and buy the slaves. Fortunately, I'm not answerable for them. So that's uh, that's kind of convenient. That's you know, kind of like a lot of IT managers. You know, they they select and buy the equipment, but uh, <laughs> but then when it goes wrong, it's the people underneath who end up having to deal with it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Actually, this actually was not meant as a, a slam on anybody. I actually know. It's just uh, I've read a lot of horror <laughs> stories. <laughs> Some underling comes in, uh, somebody else on the house staff. He comes in to tell Tavius that Maximus Petulian is here with a young girl. And I googled Nero and Tavius because it seems like, from this underling coming in, it seems like Tavius might be like a household manager of some sort. Mm -hmm. But googling Nero and Tavius just brings up Doctor Who pages. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think Tavius was a real historical figure, or if he was, he was probably a fairly minor one that they made more prominent for the show. Well, another interesting thing, which I'm not clear if they did this in this episode or in a future one, but we will see that he is a Christian. Mm. Um, he has a cross around his neck, and that's like the last time you see him is with that. So it kind of gives a, um, at least in terms of the people putting together the story, you know, the idea of why was he nice to Barbara, when he saw her being good to the woman, mm, right. and that he's sort of a, you know, Christian in the court, kind of a, you know, clandestinely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, would definitely make sense because it certainly, I won't say it wasn't characteristic behavior of of Romans to, you know, be friendly and compassionate to people, but it wasn't. A, they didn't value compassion nearly as highly as, you know, things like honor and battle skills and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the, the thing with slaves is interesting, and we've talked offline about 
the series, The Romans, the BBC series, which is a really good series, and they kind of reflect the whole thing about slaves, which is unlike, say, slavery in the United States early on, slavery in Rome was much more complex, right? I mean, you could be a pretty highly placed person who had a pretty nice life who was a slave, right? You might be the accountant Mm -hmm. or um, doing other things. You might be able to go out on your own because you'd be trusted to come back. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different situation in some ways. You know, it's a really, really interesting movie that portrays the lives of Roman slaves. And I'm not going to say it's entirely historically accurate, but a lot of it rings true. You know, it seems to be plausible, at least. It's a musical called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. (laughs) Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Our principal characters live on this street in a less fashionable suburb of Rome in these three houses. First, the house of Erroneus, a befuddled old man, abroad now in search of his children, stolen in infancy by pirates. Something erratic, something It's it's actually a wonderful movie. I'd, I'd recommend it just for Zero Mostel alone, but then there's a lot of other good stuff in it. Anyway, yeah, that's um, slavery in, in the Roman Empire was not what we picture from American history. It was you know, a little more slippery than that, I think. Yep. So these new visitors, the musician and his uh, young assistant, Tavius is going to go check them out. He gives Barbara a necklace, and I'm wondering if in the following two episodes this might play a role of some sort because it, you know, it's one of those things where the camera seems to kind of linger on it. <laughs> he gives her a necklace, and he says he'll be back to instruct her on her duties later. And there's a little, maybe it's just my mind being in the gutter, but I, I thought this seemed like a, a little bit of a, it was meant to suggest that he was going to instruct her in some rather in, inappropriate duties. Well, I feel like overall, though, especially with how Barbara is reacting to him, because she reacts to him pretty negatively all along, even while he's trying to help her. And I think this flashes me back to the Keys of Marinus. So we had this mountain guy who, depending on how you interpreted his actions, might be positive or negative, but she sort of went along with it. And it turned out his intent was quite bad. Mm -hmm. And here we have this guy. And his intent is actually good, but Barbara is just not having it. Maybe because of that earlier experience, right? Mm. Um, so she, she, you know, yeah, she doesn't yet trust him in any way, even though so far he's only helping her out. Right. So in another room of the palace, we find the doctor and Vicky standing there. And Tabius shows up in that room and he acts real sneaky and suspicious uh, and he's Sees the doctor and he goes, psst, psst. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get the doctor's attention. Now, if you notice, the doctor says to Vicky, stop making that noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so finally, Tavius introduces himself and he says, there was trouble, but I settled it. <laughs> and uh, he goes on to say, he says he here, but he doesn't really have any antecedent as to what well, he, he's talking about. It's clear that. Tavius has some knowledge of the liar player, so he's assuming the doctor knows some things 
that the liar player is supposed to know. Right. And so he right. just starts saying this stuff with no context. Exactly. Yeah. He Tavius Tavius knows a whole lot more than the doctor does right now. So he says this kind of conspiratorial thing. He's in the apoditarium. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor is baffled and he says, Well, really, well done, well done. <laughs> <laughs> And I looked it up, and a potatorium is an anteroom to the baths. It's essentially the locker room for the right. baths. Yeah, I looked this up, too. And so it turns out that that place where the soldier met the guy he'd hired was this space, as we'll see. And unfortunately, for all the really good set stuff they did elsewhere, <laughs> this uh, their, their potatorium, or however they say that, is clearly they were out of budget because there are no walls. There's this black backgrounds and there's like two little columns of metal. And, and, you know, I looked up pictures of what actual, these actually looked like, and they were very large spaces and very nicely done. And they have all of these shelves on the wall so that people could put their clothes on the shelves before they went into the baths. And this is yeah. just a tiny little dark room with no walls. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not an overwhelming set here. While they're talking about the apoditarium, a herald appears, and he announces Nero, the emperor himself. <laughs> and the emperor enters. He stands there looking around regularly, and he lets out a little belch. <laughs> and the doctor, noticing that, he sort of uh, stage whispers to Vicky, royal felicitations. <laughs> well, an but interesting thing here, there's a documentary you know, on the DVD about the show, but that actually goes into the history of portraying these characters. And so, you know, especially in this time period, there was a 10 or 20 year time period where there were lots of either films or TV shows about Rome. And so this actor is playing Nero, you know, influenced by the two or three well-known actors who played Nero before him, right? And each one is sort of adding their bit to it. But it's kind of interesting to see the development of these characters historically <laughs> through that couple of decades, you know. <laughs> well, he seems, uh, I mean, we don't see a lot of him in this episode, but he, uh, he seems pretty interesting from what we've seen of him so far, or what we will see him, of him by the end of the episode. So when the doctor says that, royal felicitations, Nero hears that someone spoke, and he's a little miffed about it. He's try and trying to find who it was who spoke, and then the, the doctor speaks again uh, more loudly and makes him more upset still, but Tavius gets things back on track by introducing the doctor as Petulian. And Nero knows who that is, and he immediately instructs him to play. Yeah, and it's clear here that the doctor, and I think even Vicky understand, that you can't, the doctor, even though he wouldn't be capable anyway, but he can't outshine Nero in any way. That would be a bad idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. You got to dial it down a little, you know, like letting, letting your kids win at a video game or something. <laughs> the doctor hands Nero his lair, and he says, I will take the inspiration from your example, sire. It's a good stalling for time. You know, it can only work for so long, but it works initially. At least Nero calls for a stool, and the doctor's about <laughs> to sit on it until Nero puts his foot on it. You know, sort of this triumphant pose, you know, like you'd see on a safari hunter stepping on the lion he just shot, you know, that kind of thing. So the doctor has to stand. Nero says he can't play this inferior instrument. He, he plays a few notes on it, and he says he can't play the inferior instrument. Calls for the imperial lyre. So 
Having his lyre back, the doctor tries to imitate the few notes that Nero did play, but Vicky confirms the emperor did it better. When we say few notes, it's literally they just ran their fingers across them. Yeah. It's not like they had 20 or 30 seconds of composition here. Or something yeah, like yeah. It was like you, you pluck four strings in a row and call it a day. Yeah. But uh, Vicky confirms the emperor did it better, and, and she, she seems to understand the psychology. Of, I mean, it probably is true that the emperor did it better because <laughs> the doctor knows nothing about playing the lyre, but... Uh, uh, but Vicky vocalizes that, and uh, certainly uh, it massages the emperor's ego a little bit. So having the imperial lyre, Nero tries something a little more complex. It's still, you know, it's still fairly straightforward, um, but it sounds good. It sounds like he knows what he's doing. And then it's the doctor's turn to try it. And uh, the doctor says, after such exquisite playing, I cannot presume. <laughs> So he offers his lyre as a gift for the imperial temple, and the servants take it away. And also conveniently, they deprive the doctor of uh, an instrument that he might be asked to play on. So, good thinking. <laughs> I like it. And the emperor, who's considerably more jovial now than he was at the start, he says they'll talk and play later when the, uh, when the doctor has eaten and practiced. And then uh, after the emperor's gone, the doctor... Pats himself on the back for getting out of that one. But Vicky asks him, what about the next time? And the doctor replies, hmm? <laughs> so he doesn't seem to have too much of a plan for the future here. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Ian and Delos have made it to Rome. Delos didn't go off on his own. They're both very dirty, or at least they have soot all over their faces. And they're skulking in the shadows, you know, some archways of a bazaar or something. <laughs> they're talking about their options and they plan first of all to start by getting cleaned up and the moment they step out of hiding there are two roman guards there waiting for them and each of them holds his sword point up to the throats of ian and delos mm -hmm. meanwhile in the imperial palace the doctor and vicky have found the apoditarium and they have a look around and as we just Recently discussed, it's not a terribly impressive set. It does the job, but if I were to try and guess from that set that it was the anteroom to the baths, yeah, I'd... Uh, it's just yeah. a random tiny room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a big curtain hanging in there, and behind that curtain they find a corpse. And the corpse is the centurion who originally found them and mistook them for the uh, Petulian, the musician. We go back to Ian and Delos. Ian and Delos are locked in the slave trader's cells. The guards, the Roman guards brought them there, probably recognizing that they were slaves. The ringleader of the slave traders says that instead of being executed, Ian will have the chance to fight for his freedom by putting in a good show in the arena and hoping Nero's in a benevolent mood. <laughs> Salsa takes me back to the Aztecs. You know, they're always getting into either being imprisoned or having to do these fights. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's always something with those folks. So we get a glimpse of the next cell, the, the uh, adjoining cell, and the old woman is still there, the one who was imprisoned with Barbara earlier. Then we hear growling, loud growling. Ian looks out the cell window, 
and there are a whole lot of lions out there. <laughs> now, of course, we don't see a whole lot of lions altogether. We get, uh, you know, stock footage shots of <laughs> this lion here and that other lion there. But, but it gets the point across. Uh, they're going to they're gonna be thrown in with the lions. And that is this episode's cliffhanger. <laughs> so being halfway through, this is where they're starting to get more toward that four episode thing, which is usually the ideal hmm. for classic Doctor Who stories. What do you think so far? Is it, you know, if, uh, if you weren't doing the podcast, would you keep watching? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I think this, um, so far it's very enjoyable and it's not doesn't seem to have a whole lot of filler, which is something I consistently <laughs> complain about when I... Yeah, no, there is a lot of plot in these two episodes. I mean, we've had movies that took less time to talk about. Them, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So far, so good. I mean, there's still two episodes left, so there's plenty of opportunity to go <laughs> off the rails. But uh, so far, really like it. It's good. Yeah, I was having great sets, you know, and they had a good number of extras. I mean, one of the things that I've mentioned before that Star Trek was the other show even the modern Star Trek, you know, the next generation where an entire city would be represented by five people in a village center. <laughs> and they have like dozens of extras here. I mean, it, and, and that makes a mm -hmm. huge difference, right? It really makes it feel like this is a populated place. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the slave auction. They had a, probably a dozen people there in the crowd. I didn't try counting them, but mm -hmm. you know, it was plausible. So yeah, definitely added a little extra Extra life to the proceedings, having more people where they were appropriate. Mm -hmm. Episode three, conspiracy. So after recounting the gladiator situation and showing again the stock lion shots from the end of the last story, it's just funny because they got really random lion shots there. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, here's some lions in an arena or anything. It was just sort of lions in cages kind of doing random things. <laughs> Yeah. So after that, we start out in the palace hallway, and we're going to see this hallway quite a lot in this episode. <laughs> and Nero is walking along with his minions, and he's playing the lyre, and his assistant is presumably notating his brilliant music, and then he appears to disagree with the notation and slams the lyre over the head of his assistant. Yeah. And then they <laughs> walk was off. A very, uh... <laughs> It's like taken out of a cartoon almost. You know, just... Yeah, and the whole thing is silent, right? I mean, they're talking, but they're not actually saying anything. So, there was... <laughs> And there's a lot of humor. I mean, this whole story, and especially in this episode, there's just a lot of slapstick <laughs> humor that goes on. Yeah. Once they leave the hallway, Vicky and the doctor meet up, having just woken up. And while they're chatting, the bald guy who purchased Barbara, his name is Tavius, hisses at them to pull the doctor aside for a private discussion. <laughs> There's a whole thing in this episode where the, this guy is always hissing at the doctor to get him to, to come somewhere, and the doctor gets really annoyed at being hissed at. <laughs> yeah, that'll go on in the next episode, too. <laughs> so Tavius thinks he knows the doctor, and he knows his plans, so the doctor has no idea what these plans are. And he tells the doctor that he's hidden the body, and we'll see him later, and then departs. And the doctor is very amused by this whole situation. <laughs> In these two episodes we're talking about today, the doctor has a lot of moments where he's amused, and some of them aren't entirely appropriate. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting thing, especially to say these last two episodes, that there's some stuff played for comedy where, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it, I'm not sure we would do it today in many cases. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, doctor tells Vicky there's some sort of conspiracy going on, and he needs to be at the bottom of it. He needs to go find Nero. 
before they split up, <laughs> this is like an old-fashioned Doctor Who conversation already from the first season. The Doctor reminds Vicky they're only here as observers. They must not interfere with anything. <laughs> so we're, we're mm, back to, yeah. you know, the Aztecs. You can't change history, even though I thought we'd sort of given up on that already. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vicky's new to the crew. She needs, uh, yeah. she needs to be instructed in these things, even if they're not accurate. <laughs> so the Doctor leaves to find Nero. And in Nero's chambers, he's there with his wife and his assistant. The assistant, and this is one of those little things in the background. The assistant keeps trying to put his crown on him, and Nero keeps moving right before he can put it on him. But it wasn't the funniest little bit, but it was there. Yeah. And Nero is upset because he's going to have to give the doctor the treatment expected of a great musician. And when the doctor plays for everyone, they're going to be paying attention to him. But that means they won't be paying attention to Nero, and that's a real problem. <laughs> His wife suggests they hold a banquet where the doctor can play. And I assume her idea is that this will be a reduced scope. It's not like he's playing for all of Rome or anything. So it'd be a little less embarrassing. Yeah. And then Tavius appears and brings in Barbara to be an assistant for the Empress. And Nero is quite taken by Barbara immediately, which <laughs> his wife yeah. notices. He gives her a good looking over. Yeah, in, in very lascivious manner. So his wife kicks him out to go arrange the banquet with the doctor. And his wife, who's Popea, the empress, makes it clear to Barbara immediately <laughs> that she intends to stay the empress, and Barbara shouldn't get any ideas with Nero. And then Popea leaves. Now, historically, this is interesting, because I guess she was kind of a on-the-make person, Popea. She was apparently very beautiful, and she set out to become the empress. So this is sort of mm. accurate to reality, I think. So she, she earned her position here. Yeah. <laughs> she leaves the room and then Barbara gets some dishes to clear away, goes into the hallway and Nero is hiding behind a column. And he actually says, you, which I don't know if they had you yeah. back in Roman times. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the beginning of something that'll continue kind of throughout the episode. They start doing the Scooby-Doo style run through the hallway where, you know, you're ducking into one <laughs> section and the other person's coming out of the other one and you're missing each other and all this. He's chasing yeah. around. And this is one for some people, not, not for me, because I'm, I think I'm fine with this whole tradition, this sort of sex farce tradition, but I have listened to a podcast where someone thought this was really inappropriate because they're kind of basically turning rape into a comedy. But mm -hmm. I don't know. You look at the history of the sex farce thing, and at least in that context, I think it's supposed to be a little more innocent than that. But, you know, I, you can certainly mm -hmm. look at it that way. I've been waiting for you. I'm coming out to you. Take your eyes, don't wait, leave me alone. You shan't get away from me. Yeah, I think when he does finally catch up to her, the first thing he says is, how about a kiss or something like that? I mean, <laughs> right. At least he starts off slow, although, you know, hmm. being a Roman emperor, uh, there's no saying where he might end well, up. Well, I think it's well, where he's there going. probably yeah, is but... saying that. <laughs> yeah, I think we know. So during this chase, Vicky backs into a room, and it turns out to be the poisoning room <laughs> where a woman named Locusta, who's kind of a harsh woman, and she's the official poisoner to the court of Nero. So I had to look this up. And this is a real character. She really was around at that time. She really was doing what they show her doing in the show. And she gives Vicky a lecture about poison in Rome. I must say, you've got a very unusual sort of a job. It has its responsibilities. 
official poisoner to the court of Caesar Nero. Very responsible. It must be dangerous, too. Great Jupiter, no, I never drink any of my potions. No, but I mean, if you poison somebody, don't they take their revenge? Always. That's why I'm kept so busy. But I mean, you... Oh, I see. You mean revenge against me. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's nothing to do with me personally, is it? Oh, I suppose not, if you say so. But the citizens of Rome, don't they object? To me? No. It's an accepted thing, isn't it? Almost a tradition, in fact, that the family of Caesar want to murder each other. <laughs> now, this part is not quite accurate. She did, in fact, get put in jail and eventually killed for being a poisoner. But it can be, I think, just as much for her failing at poisoning somebody or just pissing somebody off. I mean, it was sort of a part of the system. And she mm. was there to make poisons for the emperor and company. So. Oh, but yeah. every once in a while, someone will get annoyed and, and put her in jail. <laughs> This actress, I thought, was, uh, it was interesting because when you first see her, she just has this evil glare, you know? She looks like, <laughs> oh, what a pain in the butt she's going to be. But once she starts talking to Vicky, she's almost, uh, maternal might be taking it too far, but she's <laughs> just sort of very friendly, matter-of-fact, uh, explaining the tools <laughs> of the trade, you know? It's an interesting subversion of expectations, at least for me it was. Yeah, and that's actually true to history, too. Nero really liked her, because I guess when you have a favorite, uh, you know, a good poisoner, you don't want to give him up, right? So he gave her, like, big estates and wealth, and he set up a school for her to teach the techniques of poisoning to others. So this is oh. in her character to do this. <laughs> I'll be darned. And, I, you know, it's good to know that he supported education. What can we say? <laughs> Meanwhile, Nero manages to sneak up on Barbara in the bedroom, and he wants, as you mentioned, a teeny-weeny kiss. <laughs> the doctor enters, Nero kicks him out, the doctor meets Popea outside and tells her that Nero seems to be busy, and <laughs> she's not happy to hear that, <laughs> so she enters the room, and this is where I think, you know, yeah, he's going a little further, because he has pulled Barbara on top of him in the bed, so mm. he probably was going for a bit more than a kiss at this point. And yeah, he then dumps her yeah. off the, the bed when Papia comes in and tells her that this annoying barber woman has been chasing him around all morning. <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, this thing about the doctor entering, I, I, think, uh, I think the show might be sort of throughout these episodes. I think the show is kind of playing a little fast and loose with the mm. proprieties in the imperial court. Like, you know, the doctor will just get that an idea in his head. I think I'm going to go visit Nero. Oh, okay. He's got nothing better to do. He's just the emperor of Rome. There is an interesting historical thing. I don't know so much about Rome, but I know this was true in England, for example, with the kings and such. Like, they would have meetings from their bed and in their bedroom and in their bedclothes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the honors you could have as a senior person was to be the one who would dress the king mm. yeah. and such. So, the idea of people being in your bedroom was definitely different historically than it is now. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I have heard tales, too, of uh, royalty who would do things even less acceptable in contemporary society while they were entertaining an audience, like, you know, sitting <laughs> on the commode or stuff like that. Right, right, yep. Then we go to the prison, and the woman in prison in the next cell recognizes Ian's name when she hears it, and she tells him that she was with Barbara and that Barbara was probably sold. 
and Ian is clearly very concerned about this. A little bit of an exposition scene here. Yeah. And now we're in the baths. Uh, the, The doctor and Nero are laying down, you know, covered in towels in a steam room. Their eyes are closed. This goes back to one of the prisoner episodes we watched. And Nero's hapless assistant comes in and pours hot water all over Nero's legs, burning him. Now, he's not trying to hurt him, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have to agree with Nero here as as he gets more and more annoyed. His assistant is not very competent. (laughs) I'd be pretty pissed off if somebody came in and poured, you know, burning water on my legs. (laughs) No, no, couldn't. So Nero jumps up, immediately calls for the guards, grabs one of the guards' swords, and he's about to stab the assistant. And the doctor steps in, and in the guise of helping Nero, he interferes and has the guards take the assistant away before he can be stabbed. And then he immediately congratulates Nero on how well he handled the situation. (laughs) Yeah, I I think the doctor even goes so far as to tell the guards that he should be exiled or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he... So, so the guy doesn't get off scot free, but he lives, which is well, uh, <laughs> he lives for now. I'm pretty. I think he's the one who is still. I don't think he actually gets exiled. I think he's still around later. <laughs> okay. uh, we'll see how that goes. And then the doctor does something that turns out to be a mistake, and he later admits it's a mistake. Which is he asks Nero what this conspiracy is that's going on, and Nero is thoroughly confused. He wasn't aware of any conspiracy, but now this puts it into his head. And of course, once you have the idea that there's a conspiracy, someone like Nero is just going to start killing everybody. (laughs) And Nero then tells the doctor about this banquet, and then he'll be playing his first concert in Rome there. And again, that seems to quite amuse the doctor. Interesting thing here, and we'll see what his plan is. He's not scared of having to play this concert. So Mm -hmm. we'll see what's up there. (laughs) Back in the poison room, this gets back to what you're saying. Vicky is under the table. And she's listening as Popea, who's come in, is getting poison from Locusta so she can poison Barbara. <laughs> she's immediately identified the threat from this servant, and she's not going to put up with it, which is, under the circumstances and in the context of ancient Rome, you know, pretty reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Your husband, the emperor, is, you know, taken with this servant, so let's just get rid of the servant. <laughs> Makes sense. And when Popea and Locusta leave, Vicky gets out from under the table, and she has an idea. Because the... uh the goblets with the liquid in them are sitting on the table. We can take a pretty good guess what her idea is. <laughs> in the banquet room, Barbara's placing food. Oh, one thing I'll notice, you know, I it, actually I, I'd forgotten in this episode, and we see it at the end of the story, even though the doctor and Barbara had been in the same room, like the doctor came in while Nero was, was trying to molest Barbara, they technically they never see each other. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing where you wouldn't, it's almost a little confusing because in the banquet room, Barbara's placing food and the doctor comes in shortly thereafter. And you almost have to be paying attention to realize, oh, Barbara left the room right before the doctor came in. So they never really actually saw each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of forgot that when we got to the end of the story. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess they didn't see each other. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, in the episode uh, following, there will be some little joke payoff that relies on them never having been aware that each other was in Rome. And I that went over my head. I actually had to look it up on the Internet. You know, what What was the meaning of this dialogue? Because I hadn't realized that, no, they never did. The two groups right. never did meet each other. Yeah, I think that's a failure of the directing, because, you know, if you're going to make that joke, then you got to make a little more obvious that even though they've been in the same room multiple times, they didn't see each other, you know. Yeah. So Barbara is placing food, 
And Popea comes in with Lucusta and points out Barbara to make sure she poisons the right person. Lucusta goes to this is where I think this is Nero's assistant and makes arrangements for what he needs to do. And the doctor and Nero enter. Nero's telling the doctor he'll have to play like he's never played before. <laughs> and Nero finds Barbara and gives her a bracelet. And he obviously wants that kiss now that he's given her a gift. And the servant is coming up with, you know, this platter with the two goblets on it. So to prevent the kiss, Barbara grabs her goblet and downs it immediately. <laughs> so, uh-oh, she must be poisoned. <laughs> and now Vicky and the doctor are in the corner talking, and Vicky casually tells him she thinks she's poisoned Nero because <laughs> she swapped the drinks. Yeah. Another what I would say is maybe a mistake <laughs> in the course of things. The doctor rushes to Nero and yells at him not to drink. It's poisoned. And the only real motivation I can see here is that he is back into his idea that we're not supposed to change history, because otherwise, why not mm. let Nero get poisoned, you know? Yeah, yeah. I guess it could be just a reflex action, too. You know, you see somebody, <laughs> somebody's life endangered, you know, your instinct is to <laughs> Yeah, <and> out. <laughs> he sure saved a life here, because what Nero does is hand the goblet to his assistant and make him drink it, and he immediately <laughs> fa falls over dead very comically. And again, it's one of these, oh, isn't that funny? He just killed his assistant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Nero's, you know, reaction to it, I think. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, he's waving away a fly or something. He just Yeah, I was like, care. oh, I guess he was right. They tried to poison me, and then he just walks out. <laughs> <laughs> so back in the prison, Ian is very intent. He insists he's going to get out, and he's going to comb every market to find out what happened to Barbara. And in the poison room, Popea's blaming Lucusta for screwing up on not killing Barbara, tells guards to take her away to the arena. So this is one of those examples of her getting put into a bad situation because, you know, when, when the poisoning goes wrong, people aren't happy with you. <laughs> and we're in the banquet room. There's a big feast. They have actually quite a lot of people here and extras. And Nero is eating everything in sight. And they have been criticized for this feast being inaccurate by not having the style of table and couches actually used for Roman meals. Because, right, Roman meals, especially the fancy ones like this, there would be three people essentially around a table with a couch, you know, on three sides of the table. One side was left open so that the servants could put food there. Hmm. The production people say, look, we knew <laughs> that, but we have like a dozen people in this set and we couldn't fit, you know, four tables and all that stuff. So we just had to sit <laughs> people more, more kind of restaurant style around a kind of a bar thing. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Tavius is there, and he comes up to the doctor and tells him everything is set for tomorrow. But, of course, the doctor has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Vicky wants to know how the doctor is going to get out of giving the concert. And he said he's not going to get out of it. And he's quite delighted with his plan. Clearly, he's sort of cackling, and you know, as he does in this whole thing. <laughs> and, and part of this really is that William Hartnell was really happy to be doing a comedy. And, and you can just tell just, you know, in, in how it comes out in his performance. Mm -hmm. Nero announces that it's time for the music. And so the doctor leans over to Nero and says, this new composition is so soft and subtle that only those with keen perceptive hearing will be able to distinguish the music. <laughs> as soon as he said that, I knew, I knew <laughs> what he was drawing from. And in fact, he will mention it shortly here. <laughs> so he then proceeds to pretend to play silently. And the crowd finds this amusing, and Nero appears to be intensely listening, and he tells his wife, he's all right, but he's not all that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to watch the doctors playing, because he's really uh, hamming it up, you know, plucking at the strings, you know, and just doing, <laughs> putting on a good show. He finishes with this silent flourish, 
and the crowd claps with enthusiasm. Of course, nobody wants to say they didn't hear it. Uh-huh. Nero is upset and leaves the room. And now he does a very Shakespearean monologue to the audience about how no one gets applause like that except for him. And then he has a devilish idea for how to teach the doctor a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and he runs into his bedroom looking for his wife, finds Barbara there, decides to take her with him to the arena. He asks Barbara if she's ever seen a fight, and she says she hasn't. And he says he'll arrange one while they're there. He feels like seeing someone hurt tonight. Yes, and if you're hoping for a grand spectacle at the arena, you may be in for a bit of a lit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you might want to go watch uh, Gladiator or something. I've never seen that one. Maybe we should throw it in at some point. <laughs> so uh, you can guess who that's who that fight is going to be <laughs> involving. In the prison, we see Ian being given armor because Nero wants to see a fight. Turns out he's going to have to fight against his cellmate. And they've become friends, and his cellmate is named Delos. He's very kind. He says, well, we got to do this fight because at least one of us can survive in that case. But if I win, I'll make sure to dispatch you quickly. <laughs> so the good kind of friend. <laughs> and they shake hands. <laughs> we see Nero in this small room <laughs> that's going to kind of represent the arena, <laughs> I guess, in a way. Uh, and he tells the arena official what he wants. He's going to have the doctor play a concert in the arena for all of Rome. And then they're going to set the lions on him in the middle of it. <laughs> so, the prisoners are then brought into the room so they can have some, you know, evening entertainment. Barbara sees Ian and whispers out to him. This arena, this is why I was saying don't get your hopes up for a spectacle. Because this this room is probably about as large as the footprint of my own house, which is <laughs> not not huge. And uh, so, you know, you're thinking of the Circus Maximus or something, but this right. is a little room. I'm actually n- not clear if they were trying to represent that. My assumption is this was some little side room, but it did have kind of the throne stuff for him and her, so maybe it was supposed to be the actual arena. If it was supposed to be the actual arena, that doesn't even read at all. Right? <laughs> so Ian and Delo start fighting, and this is better than usual for these fights. First of all, they're not like switching actors out for stuntmen. You know, the actor playing Ian is the one actually doing the fighting, and he's pretty brutal. He's got this sort of chainmail net thing that he's that he's using to hit the other guy and he's really going at it and delos loses his sword ian pauses and lets him pick it up again and nero is upset that ian didn't try to kill him delos then gets the better of ian and he has his sword at his head as ian is kind of kneeling on the ground and nero tells him to cut it off giving the infamous thumbs down sign and we see the sword raised and barbara screams and it's the end of the episode now interesting thing that just occurred to me that I don't know if it's correct or not, but I've heard that the thumbs down, as we understand it, in ancient Rome, it would have actually been reversed. Like, the thumbs up would have been the move to, or the sign to kill somebody. I don't know how true that is, but that's, I've heard it at least, so, (laughs) for what it's worth. So, next episode is Inferno. I want to mention that it helped me for my notes for this episode to use Chrissy's transcript site, uh, credit where credit is due. We pick up where we left off in the (laughs) very tiny arena, and the Emperor Nero gives the thumbs down, which is the sign for somebody's got to die. So Delos attacks Nero instead of uh, going for the death blow. That's uh, due to the design of the arena. I mean, you've seen the the big spectacle movies where the emperor's box would be like way up in the stands or something. But but here it's just you know like like stepping <laughs> in front feet of away. the stage yeah, and yeah. 
Yeah, it's like a high school auditorium or something. <laughs> so it's very easy for him to get close to Nero, but uh, but he doesn't actually get to kill him. There are a few guards present, and Nero also is using Barbara as a, as a human shield, which is classy. And she can't struggle free. Ian and Delos want her to go with them, but she can't get loose, so she tells them to run. And then they do, and Ian shouts something about how we'll be back for you later, whatever. And uh, Nero tells his guards not to bother following. They'll never catch him now. Uh, a little later, he explains that the guards never would have stood a chance in the street outside. So, yeah, all right, it's a convenient way to let the guys escape, but I'll, I'll buy it. <laughs> but Nero still is intending to see them dead. He turns to Barbara and asks her if she's a friend of those gladiators because he heard the little brief conversation as the guys were leaving. He tells the guard, give me your sword. And it looks for just a moment like he's going to do something bad to Barbara. Uh, you know, he sort of turns to face her and he's blocking the camera so we can't see Barbara behind him. And uh, there's a little scream, I think. But it turns out he didn't stab Barbara. It was the guard. The guard he borrowed the sword from, in fact. <laughs> Nero says he didn't fight hard enough. And But he's not dumb about Barbara. It turns out he has a plan. There's a reason he's keeping her around. <laughs> mm, yeah. Papea, in her chambers, she tells Tavius that she finds Barbara unsatisfactory. She wants her out immediately. <laughs> Tavius wants to at least find a replacement for her first before he gets rid of her. And Papea slaps his face. That is uh, impudent of him to argue with her. She walks away. Yeah, this is a fun little scene, and it's too bad that this is an audio-based medium because it's uh, it'll be fun to include a clip of it because Tavius turns toward the camera after getting slapped, and he does a very funny slow burn where he's just standing there fuming, you know, like steam would be coming out of his ears if it could be. <laughs> the way he does it, though, it's just a, it's a fun little moment there. Yeah, but they add a little behind-the-scenes thing here because those two actors are friends for a long time, and she really didn't want to slap him. And he had to mm. talk her into it and just tell her, look, you know, pretend you don't know me and just haul off and do it. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was worth her getting over the, her scruples about it because it was a fun <laughs> little scene. So in another chamber, Barbara has gone off with uh, Tavius, and he's kind of her last resort for help. She tells him that she's getting ready to make that escape that she had told him about from the start. He listens, and uh, she tells him that Ian is going to come to rescue her, and Nero means to trap him, so she knows exactly what is on Nero's mind. And Tavius uh, is willing to help, and Barbara asks him, What can I say? I can't repay you. Tavius says, I need no reward. Besides, I have my own reason for helping you. And he goes on to say the reason is that Papea instructed him to dismiss her. So this this gives him a chance to uh, do exactly what she ordered while still helping Barbara. You know, sort of two for one there. But there's also, when he says, I have my own reason for helping you, we'll find out a little bit later that there's probably another reason, too, which we don't <laughs> yeah, know which just I, yet. which I sort of spoiled in our, our last podcast because I couldn't remember when that got revealed. But... <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Barbara also casually asks him, oh, do you know Maximus Petulian? She says that Nero is planning an appearance for him in the arena. And then she notices that outside, 
there's a guard commander walking around, and he's posting guys uh, regular intervals around the uh, around the palace grounds. And Barbara uh, assumes rightly that it must be to trap Ian. Out in the street, Delos and Ian are hiding in a shadow. Uh, there's a wall with a little recessed arch in it, and they're hiding in that shadow. They're discussing their plans. Delos knows that Nero heard Ian shout as they were leaving. He he knows that they're in cahoots with Barbara, and, uh, and Delos says they'll be waiting. Ian says, perhaps, but I've got a friend who specializes in trouble. He dives <laughs> in and usually finds a way. I think I'll take a leaf out of his book for once. <laughs> of course, he's talking about the doctor. <laughs> Nero's chamber. The doctor and Vicky have made it in there, and they're uh, looking at a big parchment on a table. It's a map, and it says, uh, Nero fake it, which means Nero made it. The doctor explains that it's the rebuilding of Rome. It's uh, Nero's little pet project. The doctor says that it's July of 64 A.D. I'm not sure how he knows that exactly, but he does. <laughs> he recalls that that was the time of the famous burning of Rome under Nero. And when he's saying this, uh, he makes a really oddly theatrical flourish, <laughs> which uh, is, again, one of those visual things that you can't really show off here, but uh, it's something to look for for people who are going to go ahead and watch the show eventually. And here, De uh, Tavius uh, comes in again with his hissing. Psst, Maximus. <laughs> the doctor says, must you hiss my name from all corners, hmm? <laughs> Tavius explains to him that there's an arena invitation upcoming, and partway through the performance, the lions are going to be released on him. And the doctor doesn't seem terribly concerned about this and very good-humored about it, in fact. It's not clear at that moment to me whether he realizes the doc that the lions would be released to eat him versus they'd just be sort of part of the entertainment, although he seems <laughs> to, to realize this by the end of the scene. <laughs> yeah. Octavius says, so you, if you still intend to carry on with your plan, today is your last chance to kill Nero. <laughs> the doctor absolutely minds, yes, yes. But then he does a double take and kill Nero. I beg your pardon. <laughs> so they have a little talk where Octavius uh, helps him get used to the idea. The doctor ends up by saying, I shall certainly act on what you say immediately. Octavius says, good, good, good. The lions will go hungry after all, eh? So he, <laughs> he feels good about whatever the doctor is planning. Then Nero enters after Octavius has left. It's funny that Nero, Nero and the Doctor uh, are, have a very insincere fraternal greeting. <laughs> you know, Nero says, Maximus, my dear friend. And the Doctor says, oh, my dear Caesar Nero. <laughs> Nero says he has a surprise for the Doctor and asks him to guess what it is. And here there's a sequence where the Doctor <laughs> just makes one joke after another about uh, being eaten by lions without actually spelling it out. I have two examples. There are about probably four or five different remarks that he makes, but two of the samples are, uh, yes, well, I promise you I shall try to make it a roaring success. <laughs> and another is uh, something they can really get their teeth into. Hmm? 
Yeah, and this whole thing, thing really upsets Nero because the doctor knew everything and, <laughs> and you know, maybe even knew about the lions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The doctor has been holding his, uh, he has eyeglasses, uh, which weren't really a thing in Rome, I believe. So he's hiding him or holding him behind his back. And it happens that they're just at the right angle to intercept a ray of sunlight. And just at the right distance from the paper that they uh, form a hot spot on it and uh, start uh, smoldering a hole right in the middle of Nero's great plan for the yes. rebuilding of Rome. It's a little ambiguous here whether it's on purpose or not, although I, hmm. the way, I mean, they go out of their way to kind of show a shot of the sun and a shot of his glasses and a shot of the thing hitting the map to make it really clear what's going on, which makes me feel like he maybe did this as a distraction. It could be. I think it's kind of ambiguous, but you could you could take it either way. Yeah. When Nero sees that the plans are suddenly on fire, he assumes that the doctor is responsible, which uh, is true, in fact. And he says, I'll stick you both in the arena on an island <laughs> with water all around. And in the water, well, there will be alligators, and the water level will be raised, and the alligators will get you. <laughs> it's very, very specific. Soon enough, though, uh, after having made some threats and handed out some insults, Nero suddenly changes his tune and says, Brilliant, you're a genius, a genius, I will make you rich, rich. Because he has realized that if the city burns down, the Senate will have no choice but to rebuild it. And that is what he's been wanting all this time. It's for Rome to be rebuilt to my design. So... The doctor's, uh, once again, slips out of trouble, at least for the moment. <laughs> and uh, he, he's, he's very cocky about it. Uh, after Nero walks off with his flaming blueprint still held like a torch in his hands, the doctor gets a little sassy with the guards and tells him, you heard what Nero said. Brilliant, brilliant. Let us go, will you? Otherwise, you'll be getting <laughs> some of that alligator treatment. <laughs> well, there's something here with this burning map and which Nero has rolled up and it's burning down while he's, you know, realizing how he could use that idea. And later we're going to see a bunch more flames. And mm -hmm. I just think about having been involved in theater a bit, whenever there's fire on a set or on the theater stage, there's a whole bunch of safety and logistics that go along with that. And, mm -hmm. on, and they have a lot of it in this show. And on top of that, you have to worry about being able to film it, right? Because the, the flame will blow out the lighting around it and so that can mess things up so i was thinking like you know <clears throat> this little thing of them running around with with little torches and everything or with this map that's burning there's actually a lot of stuff that has to go on in the background both to make sure you don't burn down the actual set and that you can film it correctly so oh yeah i bet and this uh in this scene coming up in the corridor where he's still carrying this uh torch slash blueprint that's burned down a little more now you, you'll actually see pieces of ash blowing off of it like if you had a mm. newspaper that was on fire or something so it's really uh i mean they probably had to <laughs> scrub themselves down after filming that scene <laughs> anyway in the corridor with uh, the burning the torch blueprint nero runs into his wife and explains to her his plan to burn down the city and she's mildly impressed at least she says yes it's a very good <laughs> idea <Is> she <laughs> But, you know, she isn't horrified. You want to be supportive of your spouse, you know. Oh, sure. 
especially uh, especially if you uh, want something from him, like uh, <laughs> you know to to have your uh, servant girl killed. And in mm. fact, that's uh, Nero goes ahead and uh, says that the guards that are being stationed around they are for the purpose of killing Barbara and her friends who are coming tonight. Uh, so she's happy to hear that. <laughs> Ian and Delos, mean, meanwhile. Uh, they see a line of common people entering the palace. Uh, it's not the, they don't think they know what that's for yet, but they decide to sneak into the line and blend in. And they get into the palace that way. And the line turns out to be going to a reception hall where Nero is standing in front of the group. And he pours a whole bunch of gold coins out. They just sort of, it's kind of like an Assassin's Creed where you can throw money to, to distract people. <laughs> but these people have good discipline. They don't, they don't immediately start scrabbling for all the gold coins. Not until Nero goes ahead and says, well, pick them up then. Yeah. And then they well, do. Well, I think, you know, if you know that Nero is nuts, you know, yeah, you don't want to take any chances. <laughs> oh, he's going sure. to accuse oh, no. you of stealing or something. <laughs> no, I think, I think their logic was sound there. Yeah. <laughs> So after they scribble around for a while, Nero says, that's enough, silence. He says there'll be more money for them if they carry out the task he has for them. He wants these men to start fires in the hutments next to the circus. From there, the whole city will burn. Then, you know, nobody says, that's crazy, or anything like that. They all uh, seem to be all right with it. Tavius Meanwhile, spots Ian standing towards the back of the crowd, and he tells him to come with me. And then we get a quick little shot of Nero sort of talking to himself while he's standing up there in front of the crowd, and he's trying out different names for the new Rome. It could be <laughs> Neuropolis, Nero Season, or just plain Nero. <laughs> I say go simple, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks to Tavius, we get to see Ian and Barbara reunited. They hug each other, and not, not much else. Outside the palace, a twig snaps, and the captain of the guard orders his assistants to see what that is. So I guess this scene is just put in to add a little suspense. But the guard the guard meets the doctor and Vicky sneaking around in the bushes, and the doctor says, oh, it's only us. And the, the guard <laughs> walks away. <laughs> Tells his commander that it's all clear. It was just them. <laughs> now that the meeting is over, the emperor has dismissed all these new recruits, these new arsonists, and Delos and Ian are spotted. And Delos thrusts his torch into a guard's face, and the guard falls down, at least unconscious. He's he's not moving. He might even be dead. It's not clear. But as as he escapes with Ian and Barbara. He says, the emperor's instructions, you know, referring to burn down the city, is, you know, <laughs> sticking the torch in the guard's face and possibly killing him. And that uh, makes Barbara laugh nervously. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable, I think. It's not a big, hearty laugh. It's just a little... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, another one of those inappropriate uh, humor opportunities <laughs> they have in this show. Ian and Barbara are going back to the town where they started from, which is called Assisium. Uh, Delos wants to travel part of the way with you, and then it's home for him, and he's planning that no one is ever going to spot him again after that. Well, then we get a view of Tavius, who's keeping an eye over all the proceedings, and he says, Good luck, my child, good luck, just to himself. Nobody can hear him. But in his hand, he's holding a small wooden cross that he angles toward the camera for clarity. 
So that's kind of the twist with Tavius. The reason he's been doing all these nice, helpful things for the uh, for the strangers from out of town is because he's one of the early Christians, hey. good guy, and so forth. Now, of course, he was also participating in an assassination <laughs> plot. So, you know, there are, you know, his theology has some nuances to it. <clears throat> and also, given that this is 64 AD, it's not clear if the cross was even in use yet as a Christian symbol. I looked it up in, you know, just the few sources I looked at. It seems that the first documentation we have of crosses being used, or at least the first examples of it, it seems like they're from the second century. And that that could be the facts, or that could be just my the laxness of my it's, research. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those cases where I don't think they would care if that was the case, because it's just a easy visual way to communicate to right. the viewer, right? So you're not going to say, yeah. well, we can't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that that wouldn't have stopped them. I was just uh, thought it was yep. a fun little fact or, or possible fact. Out in the countryside, the, the doctor and Vicky are sneaking away. That's, uh, that's why they were in the shrubs earlier. They were making their way out. And the doctor says, the great fire of Rome, my dear. And Vicky says, with regard to the history books, it's a pity they got it all wrong. The doctor isn't sure what she's talking about, and Vicky says, well, they didn't mention you. Doctor says, why should they? Vicky points out, well, it was you who gave Nero the idea, wasn't it? The, the doctor seems uh, amused and possibly even a little rankled by this at first, insinuating that all this is my fault. Hmm? My fault. And then he starts laughing. He actually, you know, it seems that funny angle of it hits him and he's pleased with the idea that it was actually his fault for the burning of Rome. <laughs> and, uh, and it may, I think you said something earlier about this may also be an indication that history can be changed by the doctor's actions uh, right. to some extent. Well, first, uh, you know, what there's watching here is this silhouette of a hill and the city on it and these flames behind the hill. And this was yeah decided at the last minute to be put in and the the effects team was really embarrassed about it because you know i i actually thought that was decent i mean it was kind of uh kind of low-key it's basically like you have a foreground silhouette of trees and hilltops and buildings and whatnot and then behind it there are uh you can see that you can't even really see the flames it's almost like you see lights reflected in the the right. sky above the city. Um, but I thought it was actually a pretty, pretty decent effect. That was, I, I, mm -hmm. it actually stuck in my mind. So I don't but, think they had anything to be ashamed of there. I think it, it works better if you almost think of it like one of those puppet shows where that's how they would kind of present that sort of thing rather than it's supposed to be photorealistic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't, it wasn't photorealistic, but it was a neat, it, it was atmospheric, I'd say. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, they weren't happy with it. It's actually the same guy, I'm spacing on his name at the moment, who did the Daleks and who did the Keys of Marinus and was really uh, down about the Keys of Marinus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a great, he, he's kind of a, you know, curmudgeon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he's still around and listening to this show, uh, I think he did fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the required shot, right? <laughs> the required shot. 
Oh, yes, yes, in the palace, yeah. We see a sort of a, a super superposition of two different shots. One is the city burning, but then we also, at the same time, we see Nero in the palace playing his lyre, not fiddling, playing the lyre, and laughing maniacally, as would be appropriate under such circumstances. And I, I didn't look in this or try to resolve it. I have heard that this was a slander on him, that, that you know, he didn't really do it. I, I don't know. I just, I think it's one of those things where it kind of fit with his personality, so it didn't really matter if it was true or not. He, you know, this is, uh, this is uh, n- the official history now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard, I've heard in various places that there's, you know, it's kind of like Washington and the cherry tree or, you know, one right. of those myths that may or may not have actually happened. But it is a fun little shot because he's just uh, he's just having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so back in uh, Assisium, uh, Ian and Barbara have returned to the place where they had spent a month before getting on their little Roman adventure. They've made it back, and the the place is still in exactly the same state it was when they when they left. The debris from the fight with the soldiers is uh, is still there. And Ian says, ah, now that's what they hit me on the head with, picking up a piece of shattered <laughs> pottery. And Barbara rather nervously uh, says yes. But uh, soon enough, the truth comes out. When she asks Ian to do some cleaning up and mentions that he broke that piece of pottery, uh, that kind of gives the game away. Uh, she says, I picked it up to help, but you got your head in the way. <laughs> so Ian begins to get a little steamed you know it's not clear to what degree it's genuinely steamed and and what degree just uh giving her a hard time but he uh he puts on a theatrical little speech and starts chasing her you know so i've got you to blame for being thrown into jail eh <laughs> made to row in a galley then he tells her fight like a roman <laughs> he chases her around a bit and he's uh he's captured her and he's Prepared to dunk her face in the fountain in the middle of the room, uh, which is constantly spurting up a jet of water. So he'll get her makeup running or something, but she says, no, no, I'll clear it up. So <laughs> Yeah, there's another joke here that references the first episode where he says uh, there might be some pheasant left in the fridge, and she starts to go for the fridge. You know, oh, she had made yeah. a joke in the first episode asking him to get some ice from the fridge or something. And what I thought is interesting about this, if you think about the people watching this at the time, that episode was a month before, and they're making these references <laughs> to these little jokes in it. You really have to have remembered what was going on a month before to know what they're talking about. Here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Ian and Barbara are done with their hijinks, and they're taking a nice nap. And the doctor and Vicky return from Rome. And the doctor, seeing Ian and Barbara just waking up from their sleep, He says, oh, what zest, what youthful exuberance. Try not to look at them, child. Their outburst of energy could make you go dizzy. So being a little sarcastic. This this whole thing here gets back to what we talked about earlier, that, you know, technically the two couples never encountered each other and don't know what each other have been doing this entire time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yep. And and, uh, Barbara and Ian were uh, quite amused uh, by this. And that was what kind of confused me until I... I did some extraneous research, and, and I realized, oh, my gosh, they never did meet each other in Rome. It was just, <laughs> you know, there were so many circumstances where, you know, they were just, just missed each other by a hair that somehow I got th- into thinking that they just all knew that each other 
was there. But but no, uh, as far as Dr. and Vicky know, uh, Ian and Barbara have been here living it up in their little uh, rural manor for you know, the whole time they've been away. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, that's another one of those things that might have been made a little clearer, I think, in the... Uh, by you, by the writers, but you know that—that's my fault for being slow-witted, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, Barbara and Ian try to explain about their adventure in Rome, and Vicky and the doctor keep interrupting them to tell them about their adventure in Rome. And uh, Ian wants to get a word in edgeways, and the doctor says it'll have to keep. Have a grape. Pops one in his <laughs> mouth to shut him up. So. The doctor and Vicky leave and or leave the room to go elsewhere in the house. And Ian says, well, how do you like that? <laughs> Barbara <laughs> says, even if we had told them, I don't think they'd have believed us. <laughs> so then we see uh, we're back on the TARDIS. We, we get a brief shot of the TARDIS uh, leaning off kilter where it fell off the cliff. And it vanishes even from its awkward position. It, it vanishes and it's. It's gone off to its next adventure, and inside the TARDIS, Vicky is telling Barbara about all the things they've gone through. He's telling about the Emperor's new clothes uh, trick that the doctor pulled. Mm. Oh, and you know, we I don't think we ever got around to mentioning this. At one point, he did say he was the one who gave the idea for that story to Hans Christian Andersen <laughs> in the first place. Yeah, and this comes <laughs> up with both him, you know, inspiring the burning of Rome and him saying that, you know, he gave the idea to Hans Christian Andersen. There's a difference of opinion between different sort of, you know, producers of Doctor Who, and I, I'm probably kind of more on the side of those who say, we shouldn't make him be the cause of everything that happened in history. <laughs> like, it's a little <laughs> silly at some point, you know, but uh, yeah. but these are fun little asides. And... Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, the Flashman books are kind of like that. Uh, I, I don't know if I've discussed them with you before, mm-hmm. but... Uh, there, uh, Harry Flashman ends up being deeply involved in most of the big events of the Victorian era. They're very, <laughs> uh, very entertaining books. I recommend mm. them highly. So Vicky's talking about the uh, the Emperor's new clothes trick with the liar, and uh, Barbara is listening appreciatively. And uh, Vicky says he fooled everybody. Leon says he usually does. Vicky, you'll see. Vicky wants to know where they're going next. She asks if the doctor has told Barbara yet. And Barbara says, oh, no, he never does that. <laughs> we have to remember here, this is Vicky's first real adventure with them, right? <laughs> yeah, she's still yeah. she's still the newbie. And uh, Vicky says, you mean it's a surprise? And Ian says, yeah, to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and... Vicky doesn't want to believe it. She uh, she thinks that they're just pulling her leg. The doctor, she says, he must know what he's doing. He's been at those controls for hours. So Ian goes over to, uh, to see the doctor. He says, anything wrong, doctor? And the doctor says, I wouldn't have thought it possible, but somehow we've materialized for a split second of time and been imprisoned in some kind of force. I simply can't break its hold. Somewhere, somehow, we're being... Slowly dragged down. Mm. Ian asks him, dragged down to what? And that's <laughs> where we get the credits card. Next episode, The Web Planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. 
So what did you think of this story? It's, uh, you know, because we sort of had the Aztecs and the Reign of Terror that were kind of similar in the first season. So Mm -hmm. what did you think of this version of that kind of historical story? I like it. I, uh, I I really enjoyed it. I actually most of the historical ones have been some of the standout episodes. Like Reign of Terror was good. The Aztecs was good. This one was good. From what I understand, they've tried to move away from the historical episodes. Over yeah, we're we're getting toward said. the end of that at least for a long time because yeah, the public just wasn't as interested in them. So hmm. that's that's too bad because do? I think uh, there's some of the. So far, at least, the historical ones have been uh, some of the most entertaining ones. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this was this was fun. Nero is a uh, very entertainingly despotic emperor, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, just a bunch of neat little touches, like the the the, the thing with Tavius and the big the big reveal of his motive for doing all this. It was it, a little little on the nose maybe but on yeah. the other hand uh it was fine it was good <laughs> and uh well with what what was uh locasta the poisoner say, yeah. poisoness i don't know whatever you call it <laughs> she was neat she didn't have a big role but i i got a kick out of her just because i was expecting her to be this mean old crone and she turns out to be this very <laughs> helpful well, and one of the things i'll mention even though you know some people feel like it's not appropriate to kind of have women being you know chased around for sex or whatever is that in this story there are a lot of powerful women you know the empress and the poisoner mm-hmm. and you know i mean they're and barbara and vicky i mean they're driving a lot of what's going on these are not helpless victims or anything yeah yeah, to some extent, you know, if you're if you're living in the same palace with a despot or even the same country with a despot, uh, you know, that you can become a victim in yeah. very short order if you step in the <laughs> wrong thing. Yeah. So uh, are you warming up to Vicky at all? You weren't too impressed with her first story, but that was a pretty short one. Um, I, <laughs> she's, for now, for now, I, uh, she's, she's okay. She's still no Susan, but... Uh, you know, we'll see. I'm <laughs> keeping an open mind. <laughs> All right, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I think it's a fun story. And, you know, I think in particular, they have, I mean, this is what BBC was good at, right? They have great sets, and they actually had so many more extras and actors than they did, like, in the first season when they would do this sort of thing, and it would be much smaller, right? So, so I, I think it felt like Rome, yeah, yeah, really. Uh, as far as the production design, the only real disappointment that comes to mind was the arena uh, you know, turning <laughs> yeah. out to be somebody's living room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And that, and that the only lion shots we get are lions in cages in zoos, you know, eating <laughs> some meat or something. No, no interesting things there. Um, you'd think they could have used some from, um, oh, you know, one of the rome movies or something they could have got some shots from uh mm, you know yeah the, yeah just sort of you know rent some footage or something but right yeah not too <laughs> that part not too exciting uh yeah uh, so well it sounds like you know the answer but is this worth watching for a modern audience oh yeah yeah I, uh definitely entertaining and uh one of one of the most almost manic performances from uh william hartnell he, he really just uh <laughs> had apparently uh had a good time making these shows. yeah absolutely yeah and and you know uh, his, he had a couple of very very minor flubs 
in this, nothing that stood out. And I, I think he was just engaged and rested and, you know, not so it uh, worked out really well. Yeah. yeah. So definitely worth watching. People should check it out. Now, you might have gotten slight intimations from me on the next story, but I've, I've worked hard not to say anything because I want you to go into it uh, completely fresh. So you you don't know anything about the web planet, right? Or do you have an impression um, of it from the outset? No, I mean, uh, you know, the fact that it's called the web planet <laughs> gives me a few expectations, but uh, those could be <laughs> way off base. I'm just picturing a planet covered in spider webs right now. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Well, okay, so I've kept you pure. We'll see what you think. <laughs> Join us <laughs> next week to find out. All right. But uh, yesterday I was I was watching some YouTube videos about the Dark Souls games because I've only ever played a few hours of those. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I started finding, I was, pardon me, I was just sort of trying different search terms and seeing if anything interesting came up. And it turns out uh, a lot of people have made videos about their own experiences or people's general experiences. Um with Dark Souls games as a treatment for depression. Hmm. Um, they're very melancholy, and, and they have a lot of horror in them. So you, your first reaction, at least my first mm -hmm. reaction, would be to think, what a terrible game for depressed people. And they're difficult and frustrating and be, beyond that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. um, But it turns out for a lot of people, it's just uh, just what the doctor ordered. So Interesting. Rather interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious the reason for that. I know one thing I, I've learned over time, uh, when a friend, you know, or someone I'm talking to is, is depressed either because they are depressive or because something has happened. What I've learned is, you know, the impulse and what everyone tries to do is to reassure people and tell them everything's going to be fine. And this is about mm -hmm. the worst thing you can do for someone who's depressed because all you're oh, doing yeah. is denying their feelings. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And the best thing to do is, you know just to listen and mostly be quiet and, but whatever you do, don't sort of falsely reassure. And, you know, also to some degree to confirm feelings that are reasonable. Sometimes people are depressed for a reason. Mm -hmm. So that's something I've always, always tried to keep in mind. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a, in the movie, the tree of life, which is, I think it's just an incredible movie. And there's a well, moment, That was one of the ones Sarah recommended, wasn't it? Well, I had mentioned it on that episode with her, and she had seen it as mm, well, okay. yeah. And there's uh, one of their their children, or really, you know, older children, dies in a war, and, and the mother, of course, is very upset. And there's this friend or her mother, I'm not sure which, who reassures her, saying, well, you know, you've got two other children. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, this is... <laughs> Technically true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes how not to deal with depressed people <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you fool